You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going through the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 6 this morning. The blessedness that the, the Lord offers us through this portion of Scripture is just very rich. And uh, there's a lot of blessings here for us, but they're for those who are part of His kingdom. If you're not part of His kingdom, if you haven't come to Christ, these blessings, unfortunately, uh, don't apply. And so I would encourage you to seek Christ out, to ask God to show you um, the sinfulness of your own heart, as we all have done. There's none here that's perfect. We we're all sinners saved by grace. And uh, that's just a marvelous thing. If you've yet to taste of the grace of God, I would encourage you to explore the riches of God's Word and ask His Spirit to show you uh, what He would have you to know. But Christ's words really express conditions upon those who are entering His kingdom. And it's a list of blessings as well as characteristics of all those who dwell in it. You notice we looked at verse 3 and it talks about being poor in spirit, being humble. Uh, verse 4 talks about mourning over your sin. Verse 5, last week we looked at what it meant to be meek. And we talked about meekness as being power under control. So to enter the kingdom of God, you also, as we come to verse 6, you also must hunger, it says, and thirst after righteousness. And the idea is that we have this appetite that's never satisfied and it's kind of found in every one of the citizens of the kingdom. And that appetite is simply in verse 6. It says, Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, this, that beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There, there's a lot of things in that, but one thing that kind of stands out to me right away is the idea that somebody who's hungering and thirsting after something here it's righteousness. But uh, there's a lot of different examples in Scripture of people, individuals, hungering and thirsting after things other than righteousness. Today we'd call it ambition, having ambition in life to do things. Um, and ambition can either be looked at in a negative sense or in a positive sense. Uh, in a negative sense, we think of Lucifer in the Bible, Isaiah 14. Lucifer was God's most glorious creation ever. However, he fell to his pride. He had a prideful ambition. It says in, in Isaiah 14, 13-14, it says, Thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. You can see where he's going on this. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. And then he says this, I will be like the Most High. He's going to usurp God's throne. Prideful ambition. Lucifer's ambition was to be not just compared to God, but he wanted to usurp God's authority and power. And God's response to him in verse 15 was very simply, you shall be brought down to shield to the sides of the pit. As the way it is with any prideful man. The Bible says pride cometh before what? A fall. Lucifer is one example. Nebuchadnezzar is another one. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, probably one of the world's greatest empires ever. And he ruled over a vast number of people. Um, probably one of the most kings... To rule ever. And in Daniel chapter 4, we just find a glimpse of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In, in verse 30, it says, The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that, have, uh, that, that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? You see where he's going with this. His ambition was wrong. His ambition, he was seeking after praise. He was hungry for praise. He praised himself. And God chastened him. He said, While the words were in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men. And thy dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you to eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until thou know the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth 
it to whomever he will. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not such a, uh, a big, big wig after all. There's one called God. And we shouldn't seek self-praise for accomplishments in our life. We should always be willing to give that praise to God because He's the reason that we're able to do whatever we do in life. Thirdly, you think of the rich, few, the rich fool in, uh, in Luke chapter 12. And you think of this guy who basically had all these crops. And it says there in Luke 12, verse 17, he says, What shall I do because I have no place to bestow my crops? And he said, This I will do. I'll pull, uh, pull down my barns and build bigger ones. And there will I bestow my crops and all my goods. And then it says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take ease. Eat, drink, be merry. Kind of sounds like retirement, doesn't it? Maybe some of you are retired say that's not like retirement. <laughs> but the rich fool didn't want to share his plentiful harvest with others. He wanted to hoard it all to himself. He was hungry, you might say. He was ambitious for his own possessions. And God said to him in verse 20, You fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Each one of these individuals, Lucifer, Nebuchadnezzar, and even the man in Luke 12 were all hungry. They all had ambitions for the wrong thing. There's nothing wrong with ambition if the ambition is focused on the correct thing. But when your ambition is improperly directed, it leads to a misguided life. Well, in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Blessed or happy are those who are ambitious or hungry and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. In other words, what he's kind of trying to communicate here is that just as food and water are physical necessities. I don't know how long you've ever gone without food or water, but you can't go very long. One time I went, I think it was eight days without any food. It was on this, you know, something to cleanse your system or something. I don't know what it was, but, you know, I did it for like eight days or a week, week something like that. And, uh, you know, you just drink this water with lemon juice and cayenne pepper in it and kind of crazy thing, but you drink that whenever you're hungry. And it's supposed to flush your system out of all the toxins and everything. And I remember the second day going without food. It was tough. Especially when my wife is in the kitchen cooking bacon for breakfast. And I'm, you know, my stomach's doing all sorts of naughty things. You know, just knots here and there and cramps. And you know, I'm thinking, man, do you have to cook that right now? Uh, you know, so we learn if we're going to do that, we want to do it together so that there's not this temptation back and forth. But when you go without food or water, uh, it's even worse. Uh, you can't go very long. And what he's saying is just as those are necessities in our life, beloved, Jesus wants to help us to understand that righteousness is a spiritual necessity in our life. We have to have righteousness. It comes through Christ, but we should hunger for it. It isn't wrong to hunger and to thirst physically. Those are normal desires. But the same is true over in the spiritual realm. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus is basically saying, anyone coming into my kingdom has a great appetite for righteousness. Just as great as he does for food or water. Unsaved people have ambitions. They hunger for thirst. Uh, for happiness, uh, but they search for it in the wrong places. We all see that every day. Just watch the news, watch the entertainment channels. All, the, all these people, they have all these goodies, but you know what? They're, they're, they're seeking after the wrong things. Their ambitions are wrong. They're misguided. You think of the prodigal son. When he needed food, what was he eating? He was eating pig's food in, out of a trough. That's where he had gone to. And that's kind of what man does. They, they know that they have a a hunger, they have a thirst, there's a void in their life, but they don't know how to fill it. So they try to grab everything that they can. Isaiah 55.2 says, Man seeks that which is not bread. He doesn't seek the bread of life. Jesus offered Himself as what? The bread. The bread of life. He knew the hunger and thirst that men and women had. And in the heart of every person in the world, there's that, that hunger for God. Even in, in the unbeliever. There's a void there. Jeremiah 2.13 says, God says this, My people have committed two evils. First of all, they have forsaken Me. 
the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. That's the kind of world we live in today. They've forsaken the God that created them. Uh, but God made man with a built-in desire. Just like when that baby comes out of the womb, there's a built-in desire there. It, it wants the mother's milk. You don't have to teach the baby, okay, you, you need to get hungry because you have to eat. It's just automatic. That's how that should translate over to us spiritually. When we're born again, there should be a built-in desire in our, in our lives, in our spiritual lives, a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of God. The prodigal son thought pleasure and possessions and popularity, all that stuff, would fulfill his needs, just like the world. That's what they seek after. But in the end, he realized that his soul was still hungry. The thirst that he had, the ambition that he was seeking was not quenched. And in the end, in Luke 15, 17, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And what did he do? He returned to his father's house and he was given a big feast. Picture of salvation for us. See, the world's food of all this crazy living and all that stuff, it's not going to meet ultimately the needs in people's lives. That hunger, it's not going to meet those needs. They're still going to be hungry. And those who respond to the Spirit of God come running to the Father. And they're given this giant feast which totally fills them up. It fills their hungry soul. 1 John 2, 15-16 says, Love not the world, nor the things in the world, such as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And as we study here Matthew 5, 6, we need to ask ourselves, what am I hungering for? What am I, if I'm even sitting here this morning, what am I thirsting for? What am I seeking? What am I ambitious for? If I said, list your top five ambitions in life, what would they be? Do you seek power? Do you seek praise? Do you seek possessions? Do you seek pleasure? Are we feeding ourselves on the husks that the swine eat out of a trough? Or 2 Peter 2.22 is more graphic. Are we like dogs who lick the vomit or the pig that wallows in the mire? If that's what we're seeking after, the things of the world, that's what God compares those things to. Or are we, on the other hand, feeding at a real source of happiness? Are we plugged into our Creator through Christ? And really, that answer this morning is you sit there, what are you seeking after? Are you seeking after the righteousness of God? Are you seeking after whatever the world offers? That really gives you an answer and it gives you a strong indication of whether you are in Christ's kingdom or whether you are not. A lot of people say, well, how do I know if I'm saved or not? Well, what are you seeking after? What's your heart desiring? What's your ambitions in life? Are they things that are honoring and pleasing to God? If they're not, you know what? You better go back to, to, to home base and, and figure out what went wrong here. Because God says, everybody who's going to enter into my kingdom will have a hunger and a thirst, He says, for righteousness. Well, how does this beatitude differ from the other ones? How does it fit in here? Now, if you look through this, and you've probably been reading this, chapter 5, it's really a progression. As you, as you look at these different Beatitudes, the first Beatitude says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And we talked about how Jesus didn't you know, draw straws and figure out, okay, I'll just do this humble thing first. No, that's a necessity. That's the basic in the Christian life. You have to be humbled to come to Christ. You have to be humbled to come to the cross and say, yeah, I am a sinner. I am wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told they're a sinner. But that's what the Bible calls us because that's the state in which we find ourselves. And it takes a humble person to look at themselves and say, you know what? The Word's right. I am a sinner. I do need Christ's forgiveness. He who's poor in spirit recognizes that he's devoid of his own righteousness. See, the person that sits there and says, well, you know, I go to church and I, you know, I'm just a righteous person. No, you're not. The Bible says that we're sinners saved by grace. In God's eyes, what seem to be human advantages in this life are nothing. Nothing at all. Apart from Christ, every man and woman is hopeless and sinful and on a way to an eternity in a place called hell that really does, yes, it exists. Well, that humility leads to the second one. Blessed are they that mourn. He who is poor in spirit looks at their sin and says, man, I'm in trouble. 
And it breaks their heart because they realize that they've broken the heart of God. And so they mourn over their sin. They realize that they're morally bankrupt. And that leads to meekness. Someone who understands their sinful nature and mourns over it is meek before God. In comparison to God, sinful man recognizes that he's nothing. When you look at a holy God and then you look at yourself, you realize meekness really recognizes that man's internal spiritual hunger can be satisfied only from God's table, not from the world's. And so the progression of these Beatitudes is very simple. Uh, a commentator, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this in his uh, studies in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The Beatitude again follows logically from the previous one. This one does. It is a statement to which all others lead. It is a logical conclusion to which they come. It is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole Scripture, you can be quite certain that you are a Christian. If it is not, then you better had examined the foundations again. See, our society chases after all the wrong things, money, possessions, fame, pleasure. And you know what? Even our Declaration of Independence says that everyone has a right to pursue happiness. But you know what? Most people pursue that happiness in the wrong place. So it's a progression of thought. It's also part of God's promises here. It says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Each beatitude kind of accompanies a promise. first one is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Four, it says, if you mourn, you will be comforted. Verse five, it says, if, if you seek and hunger, or if you're meek, you will inherit the earth. In verse six, they shall be filled, those who thirst and hunger. So the, the world is, is kind of just going crazy trying to fill all these voids with material things. And you know what? Even the Jewish people in Jesus' time, they worked hard to bring the kingdom to earth. That's what they wanted. They wanted to inherit the kingdom. They were trying to fill their empty lives with meaning. But they were looking for the wrong things. That's why they missed the Messiah altogether. What the Lord Jesus promised, He offered as a gift. And it logically follows meekness. Um, I think that the key to receiving God's promise is meekness. Those who are meek are broken over their sin. They realize there's nothing good in themselves. And they seek what God has promised. Matter of fact, in every example in the Bible of meekness, the underlying motive was that that person knew God's promises. That's why they were meek. You think of Abraham. When Abraham and Lot divided the land, we talked about this last week, they were living and, and, and Abraham told Lot, isn't the whole land before you? Let's not fight about this. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. I don't care. Take whatever you want. Abraham demonstrated meekness. But it was based on his knowledge that God had promised him the land anyway. So it didn't really matter what Lot took in Abraham's mind because ultimately God was going to fulfill His promise. He didn't care if Lot took some of that land and used it temporarily, Abraham realized sooner or later God was going to be faithful to His promise. See, the meek person knows that in the end God will give him everything. That's what awaits us in heaven. You think of the example of David. When David had the opportunity to kill King Saul, his enemy, but he didn't. Remember, he cut off the corner of his robe. Kind of went, nah, 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 nah. You know, I could have got you, but I didn't. David knew God had anointed him to become king of Israel. So he didn't get caught up in all the details. He didn't know how it was going to work out. But you know what? God was going to be faithful to His promises. He could wait on the Lord's timing because he knew God would fulfill His promise. I pray today that as you sit here and you hear these words, that you're a person that you know that God will fulfill His promises in your life. It takes away a lot of the worry. It takes away a lot of the anxiety. It takes away a lot of the hurt being offended here and there by everybody. Takes away a lot of the, the strife out of relationships because you realize, you know what? You're just going to do what God wants you to do. And God's going to take care of the rest. God said that we will inherit the earth. 
There's no need to spend our lives here on earth trying to get it. God said, I'm going to give it to you one day. You're going to receive. You're going to inherit the earth. Why are you working so hard in this world trying to get things that are temporary, that rust and moths destroy? God is trying to say, you know what? Let's get our priorities back in order. It doesn't say we can't have things. Let's just have them in the right priority in our lives. Whereas Chuck Swindoll, I think, said it. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. It's when the nice things have you. You know, it's when you can't come to church on the weekends because you're at the cabin or you're, you're polishing your boat or you're washing your, your motorcycle or you're doing something like that. And everything else falls by the wayside. All, all the things that the Lord wants you to do, you just shove aside because, well, you have this new toy and, and all your, it consumes you. It's like Christmas morning, you know, you go to the, I don't know how it was in your family, but in our family, it was just, I mean, it was sinful. It was bad. I mean, we just had gifts everywhere. And, um, you know, we had a big family, but still, we all were pretty spoiled that way. And I remember coming down the steps uh, Christmas morning and, and, you know, my sister-in-law would just go overboard decorating the house. We usually have a great big tree and, and, you know, usually I was one of the first ones to get up and I'd sneak downstairs and I'd look. Usually my brother was kind of passed out in his lazy boy there, probably just thinking, oh, how are we going to pay for this? And uh, usually my sister-in-law was, was just still sleeping from wrapping all these gifts. But I remember going to bed Christmas Eve, we had nothing under the tree. And, and we'd wake up Christmas morning, we'd go down and it was just amazing. Piles of gifts. And I remember just being so excited and opening up these gifts and, wow, this is cool. And you play with it for a little while. And, oh, this one's for me too. And it just, you know, paper everywhere. It was crazy. And then I remember probably, you know, in the afternoon, it was like some of these gifts were cool, but they weren't as cool as others. And, you know, the newness wore off pretty quick. And after a week or two, it's like, yeah, they were in the toy box with everything else. And, you know, sometimes the things in this world, they have a tendency to grab a hold of us. And God is just saying here, He's saying, hey, you know what? Don't strive after those things. I'm promising you those things anyway. You know, you just be faithful to me. And nothing wrong with having those things, but don't allow those things to have you. Someone said, you know, there's, there's no need to spend our lives trying to, to get all these things. And we shouldn't mind when others borrow it for a while. Because ultimately, it's going to be ours. God promises that to us. We see the example of Christ in Matthew 5, 40 to 42. Jesus says clearly, if any man will sue you at the law to take your coat, what are you supposed to do? Give him your cloak also. And whoever shall compel you to go a mile, well, you know what? Go too. Give to him that ask, us, ask you. And from him that would borrow, don't uh, turn away. In other words, we aren't, we aren't supposed to, as believers, to hang on to our possessions so tightly that God has to pry our white finger, you know, our, our, our knuckles from, from these items. We should be willing to let them go, whatever it is. And one day, God will, will bless us and we'll, we'll be satisfied in, in that area of our life. But we have to be careful about that kind of ambition. Also, you think of the example, not only of Christ and what he said, but the example of Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. See, the Jewish people of Christ's time wanted to rule the earth and they wanted to be comforted in the midst of this bad political situation. You know, the Romans were dominating all this stuff and they had bad social circumstances. And they were working hard and furiously to, to get this thing right, to, to become happy in their situation politically. But our Lord told them that they would be given what they sought only if they came on His terms. In Matthew 6.33, He said, Seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, He told them. You don't worry about those things. You just seek first My righteousness. It's painful to be broken in spirit. It's painful to mourn over your sin. It's even painful sometimes to, to be meek because you're dying to yourself. But Matthew 5, 6 holds the promise of comfort. He says, when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, he says, you will reach, when you reach out to God, what? You'll be satisfied. He'll meet that need with only what he can give you. 
Well, what does this mean? What is, what is Jesus trying to communicate when he says hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, first of all, it's having the right kind of desire. It's the right kind of desire. You know, we know that our hunger, our desire for, for food and our desire for water are intense. They can be very intense. They're, they're very intense desires. But this concept here that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5-6 was even a more powerful concept in His culture than it was in ours. I mean, for the most part, most of us don't know what it means to be hungry or to thirst. We just don't know. We can't even comprehend it. I mean, you know, we may go a couple days without something in the cupboard, but I don't think any of us here this morning is starving. Beloved, there are countries where people don't have food. Literally, they don't have food. I mean, you've seen the pictures. These little children with the ribs and the... I mean, it's horrible. I mean, I can't even imagine that. They can't drink the water or they drink it and they get sick, dysentery, all this sorts of things happen. Most of us has never experienced that kind of a hunger or that kind of a thirst personally, nor even probably been in the presence of someone that's been going through that. You know, we think of hunger kind of as this empty feeling when it gets about, you know, 11.30 and the pastor's not done yet and our stomach's going, we've got to get to the goodies, come on, let's wrap this thing up. See, the, the, the Greek verbs that Jesus is using here, this, this idea of to suffer deep hunger, it's not just the, oh, I, I can't think of a little hunger, I can get something to bite to eat. No, it's, it's a deep hunger. And the, the, the word there, to, to suffer thirst, it's a very strong thirst. It's not just, oh, gee, my, the wet my whistle a little bit. It's something that's very intense. And it's interesting, too, that they're present tense participles. In other words, this is a continuous action. This hunger, this thirst doesn't go away in the life of a believer. He was speaking of those who continuously hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness. Another commentator, Lenski, says that the hunger and thirst a person has for righteousness, he says this, increases in the very act of being satisfied. Speaking of that same hunger, Luke 6.21 says, Blessed are ye that hunger now. See, if you claim to have a relationship with Christ, but you aren't hungering, you aren't thirsting for righteousness, you're just kind of on autopilot in your spiritual life and you go to church and that's about, that's about it. Okay, You need to honestly question, do you know the Savior? Or are you just holding on to some past profession of faith that you made somewhere along the line? Do you really know Him? If you really know Him, this kind of thirst, this kind of hunger for righteousness is going to be dominant in your spiritual life. Think of Moses... While, while Moses was living in the wilderness, God called to him from the burning bush in Exodus 3. And when he drew near to the bush, God said, put your shoes off of your feet for the place you're standing on is holy ground. And you think about that. Think if you were in that situation. And you go up to this bush. First, the bush is talking to you. and It's on fire. It's not burning. And then a voice comes out and says, hey, you better take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. I mean, he saw the kind of glory of God in this bush. And yet later, when God led Israel out of Egypt, Moses saw the, 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 the hand of God in all the plagues. Remember all the plagues that happened? He saw God just work all these miracles. He saw God at work in the Red Sea when the Red Sea parted for the Israelites and when the Egyptian army went through it, it, it closed in on them and destroyed them. Moses knew what it was to hunger after God and to be filled. After Moses built the tabernacle according to God's commandments and, and God's glory took residence in it. Moses still wanted to see more of God's glory. It wasn't enough. I mean, you think that he saw enough. I mean, personally, probably one of those uh, you know Red Sea es escapades in my life that would be a big deal. That would probably keep me going for a couple years. You know, and that's you know we we have those things when God answers a prayer and just a miracle in our life, it's just amazing. And, you know, that kind of pumps us up. And, boy, God answers prayer. That's great, you know. Wow. And it carries us for a couple of years. But in that year of time, we have nothing fresh. You know, in that year of time, when someone says, what's God's doing? Well, you know, a year ago I prayed, and here's what happened. It was just incredible. Two years down the road, yeah, a year ago. I, two years ago I prayed, and here's what happened. But God's not doing anything fresh. 
Moses wanted something fresh in his life. Moses hungered to see and to know more about God and His righteousness than ever before. See, that's what kingdom citizens are like. They can never get enough of God's righteousness. God, it's not like you, you can get topped off. You know, you go to the, the gas station, you top off your tank. You know, if you keep on pumping gas, what happens? It runs all over your car or your motorcycle. But it's important to understand that we should never get topped off when it comes to God's righteousness. You think of David, his desire. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He walked in close communion with God, something we should all desire. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David wrote, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. He knew God. David personally experienced God's protection, His care, and His guidance throughout his life. He had a zeal for God's house. Pain that fell on God fell on him. In Psalm 63, he says, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsts for Thee. My flesh longs for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. See, David's hunger and his thirst for God, his righteousness never diminished. You think of Paul's desire. Paul knew the Lord. I mean, he had seen a personal vision of Christ on the Damascus Road. Can you imagine that? In the jail of Jerusalem, when he was caught up in the third heaven, the Bible says, he saw things too wonderful to describe. Can you remember? Can you imagine somebody experiencing something like that? You say, well, what was it like? You know, I can't even tell you. I just can't even tell you. I, I can't find words to describe what God showed me. He wrote many of the books in the New Testament. It would seem that he knew all of God that he would ever want to know. And yet, you turn to Philippians 3.10 and he says, Oh, that I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Before Paul was converted, he had known the righteousness of the law. After his conversion, he counted all that righteousness as worthless compared to knowing the righteousness of God. Second Peter 3.18, we're exhorted to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Early leader of the Plymouth Brethren movement, J.N. Darby, wrote this. He says, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what it is what is in his heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. That's good. See, only God can satisfy that kind of desperation. Only God can satisfy that, that starvation that we experience in our lives. And not until people hunger and thirst after righteousness do they seek the fulfillment God can give. Those who are satisfied with what they have will not seek to be filled by God. If I invite you over for dinner and you just ate, you know what? I could have lobster and steak. And you'd probably, you know, topped off. I'm full. Nice of you to make this meal, but, you know, I just can't eat another bite because I already ate before I came over. You have to be at, a, at the end of your rope at a desperate position in life when you cry out to God to be filled with His Righteousness. Only when we see Jesus Christ will our hunger and our thirst for righteousness be satisfied. That's the only time when we're in His presence. After that, then we're not going to be void of anything. But until that point, we should, that, that hunger should continue. Well, what are, what are we supposed to hunger for? I think, first of all, we need to kind of set aside some of the super official happinesses that the world has to offer. Amos says this in 2.7. He says that the people of the world pant after the dust of the earth. In other words, people hunger for happiness, but they look in all the wrong places. You know, I remember when I was 12, my sister took us across the country and we went to California and part of our trip we went to Disneyland. What's Disneyland? The happiest place on earth, right? 
And, and I'm thinking, you know, that's kind of what, what the world's picture is for, for those who don't know Christ. They bought into that. They feel that this is the happiest place. The world is the happiest. There's nothing after here. So get it all while you can. It's as though they have a painful disease and they're, ha- they're happy just to put up with as long as they have no pain. A doctor would be, really, if you stop and think about it, he'd be considered very bad if he would cure, if he could cure a disease, but instead he just said, you know, we're just going to take care of your pain. If they were able to give my brother a pill and cure his cancer, that'd be great. But if they had that pill and the doctor just said, you know, Bob, you're in a lot of pain. Here, we'll just give you this sedative. (laughs) It's not going to take the cancer away. We have this pill, but we're not going to give you that. We're just going to give you a, a sedative to kind of cover up the pain. See, that's what the world is doing. They're ignoring the disease and they're trying to cover it up. They're trying to find anesthetic, something in the world that will take away the pain. See, too many, I think, in in churches today are seeking that same kind of remedy for their problems. They're seeking after the world's answers. Just took one of my relatives to a biblical counselor here locally. And she came out of the session and she said, I'm so glad you had me talk to this man. I said, why? She was just everything he said made sense. It made biblical sense. It wasn't come in, lay on the couch, and pay me $150 and tell me all your problems and then come back next week. His answer was, you know what? First of all, you need, you need to go before God and you need to repent and you need to seek His righteousness and you need to get plugged into a body and, and, and you know, get this thing going spiritually. That's the answer. You're not going to find answers like that in counseling books. God wants to meet our needs. But we have to shun this superficial happiness that people offer us. A lot of people in the church just want this holy high. They're looking for some ecstatic experience. You know, you come to church and you sing you know, great songs and all this stuff and everybody gets excited and blah, 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 blah. Then you walk away and you come back the same. You walk away the same way as you came in. Nothing's changed. One thing can change you is, is the Word of God. That's why we, we give the Word of God precedent in our services. That's why we stand when it's read. That's why we teach from the Bible. We don't teach from you know, a book on the purpose of life or whatever. I mean, we teach from the Word of God. This is. He does give us our purpose. So we want to not look to that, but also we want to seek spiritual happiness. A lot of people just want to be happy. They want to know, why am I so miserable? Well, Jesus says here, happy or blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, happiness is a byproduct of God's righteousness in your life. It's a byproduct. It doesn't come from getting zapped by some holy high. Biblically, righteousness or justification, what's it mean? It means to be made right with God. What could make you more happy to, other than to know that you're, you're made right with the Creator that created you? The only real happiness of any kind of value that lasts is being made right with God. That's the first step. Salvation. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness seek salvation. That righteousness is given when a person believes in Christ. At that point, he will understand that he's a sinner and he's separated from God. And he becomes broken in spirit and he becomes mournful over his sin and, and he's meek because he realizes that there's nothing within him. And he wants to be restored to that right relationship with God. He wants his forgiveness. And he wants to be freed from sin's power and guilt. Righteousness in the Old Testament is really synonymous with salvation in the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah over and over again, noting that righteousness is a gift received at the moment of salvation. You don't work on your righteousness. You are declared righteous before God when you come to Christ. Thus, really, we can read this, if those words are synonymous, happy are those who hunger and thirst 
after salvation. Because that's the only place you're going to find righteousness. Those who want to be happy desire salvation. How's your life going? How are you on the happy scale? Are you bummed out continuously? Are you grieved over all the hassles and trials in your life? Have you taken them to the Lord? Have you turned to Him and said, God, this is hard. I can't do this. That's what He wants. He wants you to be broken before Him. In Matthew 5.20, Christ said this, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Even those who were externally the most righteous in Christ's time didn't meet the standard. And what he was saying is, you can't create a righteousness that God will accept. It's got to come through Christ. And that's what the Beatitudes do. When we study these, they basically strip away all the external self-righteousness in our lives. And they force us to look at ourselves for who we are. A sinner in need of God's grace. So you seek salvation. Also, sanctification. You know, you don't get saved and then you just stop hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's something that you want to see God sanctify you. You want to see God make you more like His Son each and every day. He desires greater purity in your life. You're never going to get to a point in your Christian life where you think that you arrived. You're just not going to get there. It's not going to happen. Tomorrow there's always going to be a new day with new challenges, new sins to face, new temptations. Sometimes you hear people thinking that they saved themselves or somehow they arrived and they don't need all this stuff. I, I learned that before. I, you know, I read that. You know, I don't need to come out for that. I'm, I'm secure in that area or, or whatever. I don't need to hear that teaching anymore. You better be careful. Paul prayed in Philippians 1.9, he says, This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. See, no matter how much you love, you should love more. No matter how much you pray, how much you obey God, or how much you think like Christ, you should always want to do better. That's the precedent that, that Jesus is setting here. And it's interesting that, that Christians aren't to seek just bits and pieces of this righteousness we're talking about. They seek all the righteousness of Christ in their desire to be like Him. It's interesting here in Matthew 5, in the Greek, the grammatical construction, these, these verbs like hunger and thirst, they're normally followed by nouns in what they call the genitive case. And in English, the genitives are usually expressed by placing words, uh, the word on, or the word of before a noun. So when a Greek person was hungry, he would literally say this, I hunger for of food. That's a, a partitive genitive, a noun in the genitive case that indicates a person wants part of what is available. In other words, you're not going to get the whole thing. Just because you hunger, I hunger for of food doesn't mean when you get that food, you're, you're satisfied. It doesn't mean that. Rather, he, he would phrase his statement to mean he wanted enough food to satisfy his need. He wouldn't say, I hunger for food, because that would mean that he hungered for all the food in the world. He would just say, I hunger for of food, literally. And it's kind of interesting. That's normally how he would do it. Here, it's interesting in Matthew 5, 6. They don't do that. It's abandoned. Instead, there's, there's a different case that's used, an accusative case, which makes the verse read this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after all righteousness. Not just part of it. You can't just have part of it. Either you have all of it or none of it. You can't be partly saved, partly justified, partly righteous before God. You're either all saved, all righteous, totally justified before God, or none of it. The Christian is never satisfied because no matter how much righteousness he has, he doesn't ever have all that is available to him. That's why in Psalm 17.5, David cries out, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. 
It's interesting too in Matthew 5, 6, the definite article appears in the Greek text before righteousness. In other words, Christians are to desire the righteousness, the righteousness of God. Not just righteousness in general. Our hunger and our thirst for righteousness begins with salvation and it continues in our sanctification become more like Christ. And Jesus commended those who are, are hungry after righteousness, not just those who claim to possess it. See, it's one thing to claim to have righteousness and another thing to say, man, I'm hungry for righteousness. Two different things. Those who heard Christ preach Matthew 5 expected him to say, blessed are those who possess righteousness. That's what his Jewish audience thought he would say because after all, they were Jewish. They were God's chosen people. They are righteous. We don't have to thirst after righteousness. And when he came out and said, no, you have to thirst and you have to hunger after righteousness of God, it blew him away. It's been well said that such a desire is a thirst no earthly stream can satisfy. A hungry a hunger that must feed on Christ or die. What's the result? Well, first of all, it's blessing. You'll receive the blessing. He says, blessed are those. Also, you'll receive a filling. You shall be filled. That, that word is an interesting word. It's used for uh, foddering an animal, uh, feeding an animal. God will make us happy and He'll also make us satisfied. So you see kind of here there's a, there's a paradox. God will satisfy us, but we will continue what? To hunger. We'll continue to thirst in this life. I'm satisfied sometimes when I eat some of my uh, custard that I make. I like to make custard. And um, so I'll make a batch of custard and use these 12 of those little carob things, you know, do it in the oven and everything, and just love that stuff. Reminds me of high school. We had this custard in high school, and it just takes me back, you know. And I'll eat one of them to scrape around the little edge and everything, and, and uh, you know, I'm making on, a, say, a, a Sunday. You know, by Sunday night, you know, in the sink, there's six of these things sitting there. And, you know, my wife looks at that, not as very good. You know, you're, what are you doing? You know, you ate all this stuff. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's something that I can't seem to quench. I mean, I can eat it. I can eat tons of that stuff. I can just sit there and eat, eat custard all day long. Especially the stuff I make, I just like the way I make it. I don't know why. But I always want more. It's kind of like, you know, a Lay's potato chip. You can't just eat one. It's the same thing. Um, and the, the satisfaction of one piece provides this increasing desire to have more. And that's the picture here. That's what Christ is trying to say. Uh, the, the righteousness of the saved is something that we crave. And even though when God fills us, we still want more of it. We can't get enough. James 2.15-16 to 16 says, If a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace and be warmed and be filled, what does it profit? That word filled speaks of being really filled or stuffed. In James, James was referring to physical food, but Jesus here was speaking of spiritual food. Psalm 107.9 says, For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Psalm 34.10 said, They who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Psalm 23.1-5, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want my cup, what? Runneth over. Jeremiah 31.14, My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Even in John 4.14, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of this water that I shall give shall never thirst. John 6.35, I am the bread of life, Jesus said. He that comes to Me shall what? Never hunger. See, Christ brings satisfaction into our lives. That's really what He does. And when you're satisfied, usually you're happy. I don't think I've ever met someone who's satisfied just and they're miserable. I don't find that very often. Yet believers also have a blessed, you might call it dissatisfaction, that desires more of His righteousness. In other words, you're not so satisfied that, you know, I remember when I was a little, little boy, probably 11 or 10, 12, 
my sister-in-law and brother were raising us, and she was Italian, true Italian. And, and we, every Sunday after church, we'd go to Mass, and then we'd all pile in the car, and we'd go up to her mother's house. And, you know, Ken, you know this, and those other of you who are Italian. I mean, you know, we'd get there, and, and um, they'd be, you know, doing the pasta and making everything. Okay? So we'd go downstairs and watch TV. Dinner's ready. Okay, we'd all come up and sit around this big, long table. And they'd bring out the first you know, plop of whatever. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, and they'd sit there for hours eating this food. I mean, just plate after plate. You know, they'd have spaghetti with, you know, beef in it and meatballs and, and uh, ravioli, handmade ravioli, all this stuff. Lasagna, and then the salad, and then more, and they're drinking wine. And, you know, but I remember at the end of, like, hours they were eating, I mean, us kids couldn't eat that much, so we had ate our little plate and we'd go. But I remember coming back up when we'd get in a fight and they'd still be at the table. You know, I'm thinking, how do these people eat this much? And you know, But I remember finally, I mean, it all ended, and they'd go out in the living room, you know, and the men would kind of unbutton the, the top thing of their pants and kind of sit there, and, you know, the women would all be in the kitchen cleaning up. It's just a picture that's just burned in, the, in my mind. And they were finally, it's like they were finally satisfied. And then like 20 minutes later, hey, you got any of that ravioli left, you know? I just thought, man, I've never seen people eat so much in my life. I mean, it was good food, don't get me wrong. But it was just this, this immeasurable amount of food that, and it never seemed to satisfy. That's what kind of God is saying to us. He, he blesses us with His righteousness, but you know what? That righteousness shouldn't satisfy us. We never come to a point in our Christian life where we look at ourselves and say, oh yeah, now I'm totally righteous and I don't need this God thing anymore. I'm perfect. We don't get there. His satisfaction even brings more dissatisfaction into our lives. Well, how do we know in closing here that we're thirsting, we're hungering for Christ's righteousness? Thank you for bearing with me. I know it's hot down there. It's really hot up here. So, um, First question, are you dissatisfied with yourself? Are you dissatisfied with yourself? Thomas Watson said this, He has most need of righteousness that least wants it. The one who least wants righteousness is the one who needs it the most. That's what he's saying. Do you find yourself saying, as Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body, the body of this death? Or are you self-righteous, thinking everyone else is wrong and you are right? If you're in any sense satisfied with yourself, you need to question whether or not you're truly hungering, you're thirsting after the righteousness of God. that pain of constantly falling short of God's standards, it really characterizes those who hunger after His righteousness because we never arrive, beloved. On this side of glory, we're not going to arrive. Believers need to hunger for righteousness as even Esau when he returned from his hunting trip. Does anything external satisfy you? Do external things influence the way you feel? Do things seem to be better in your life when you buy something new? A hungry man will never be satisfied with flowers. He'll never be satisfied with music. He'll never even be satisfied with an encouraging speech. What's he want? He wants food. <laughs> and usually he wants it now. Okay, A thirsty man will never be satisfied unless he's given something to drink. It's very simple. Well, a hunger for righteousness cannot be satisfied with anything other than the righteousness which Christ offers to us in salvation. Third thing there, do you have a great appetite for God's Word? Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. That hunger shouldn't leave Believers shouldn't have to be told to read and study their Bibles. To me, that's just ridiculous. It's like, it's like telling somebody, oh, well, you know, you, you need to eat. Make sure you eat and drink water. It's, it's parallel. As believers, people shouldn't have to tell us that. It should be automatic in our lives. And you know what? I'm here to tell you this morning, if you have no desire to learn what the Scriptures say about increasing your righteousness... I'm sorry, you're not functioning as a child of the kingdom that you should be. Either you're being sinful 
or you aren't a child of the King. We all should have that appetite for God's Word. Are the things of God sweet to you? Proverbs 27.7 says, to, hunger, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. So you can tell a person if they're truly seeking righteousness when God brings this kind of a devastation into their life. The hungry soul will still be content despite the tough pain that he's going through. Those who rejoice only when good things happen and react with resentment when things get rough, they're not thirsting after the righteousness of God. They're chasing after some superficial happiness that the world offers. Thomas Watson also, he said this, the person who desires righteousness can feed upon the myrrh of the gospel as well as the honey. Some know what it's like to be reproved by God or suffer greatly. They've experienced trials, pain, anxiety in their lives. But they still go back to God and they, they, they understand that God is for them, not against them. And the last thing there is your hunger unconditional. Is your thirst for God unconditional? You think of that, that young ruler who wanted to know how to get into Christ's kingdom. However, his, his hunger was obviously conditional and it was never filled because he, didn't, he was unwilling to give up his possessions. If you want Christ in your sin or you want Christ in something else, it doesn't happen that way. You'll never be filled. A hungry man doesn't want food in a new suit. He wants food. A thirsty man doesn't want water in a new pair of shoes. He wants water. Psalm 119.20 says, My soul breaks for the longing that it has onto, the or, on, onto your ordinances at all time. I opened talking about ambition. I just want to close with an illustration, an example of good ambition, you might say. There was a, a student at Amherst College, and after he entered his freshman year in his dormitory, he put up the letter V, big red V over his door. And because of it, obviously, he endured all sorts of ridicule. Um, and he withstood questioning. Uh, he paid no attention to either. And he wouldn't tell anybody what that V stood for. Four years went by. He had that V up there. Graduation day came. The student was appointed to deliver the valedictory. Then the mystery of this letter V was revealed. It stood for valedictory. The letter on the door held before him the idea that this is what I'm shooting for. I'm going to be the top in my class. Not everybody puts a letter over their door or on their house. For real. But I think sometimes, usually, maybe just in our heads, we put letters up in our lives. What are we ambitious for? Maybe some of us have M, which stands for money. Maybe others have F, which stands for fame. Maybe others put up S, which stands basically, I'm going to watch out for myself. You know, once in a while it's good to step outside your door, your front door, turn around and ask God to show you what letter is hanging on my door. What are my ambitions after? Are they God-centered or are they world-centered? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You that You're a God who's gracious to us in so many different ways. Lord, we pray this morning if there's any here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in You, for their salvation. Lord, I pray that You would do that work in their heart even now. Lord, I pray that they would understand their sinful condition before a holy God, that there's nothing good in any of us that we can save ourselves. We need to cry out to You for Your grace and Your mercy. Lord, and only then when we come to the end of our rope, when we understand how debased we are, how wicked our sin is, how wicked our hearts are, then, and only then, can we sense Your forgiveness, Your willingness to reach out to us in grace. Lord, I pray that this morning, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in You, Lord, maybe they're trusting in a church, maybe they're trusting in their good works, maybe they're even trusting in, in another person. 
Lord, I pray that all that would fall aside and Lord, that they would put their ultimate trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of their souls. Lord, do that work in their heart now. Show them their need to to turn from their sin, to repent of their sin, and to turn to You, a gracious God who has His arms wide open and is eager and joyful to get to know them in a very intimate way through Christ. Lord, as believers, I pray that we would never misplace our ambition when it comes to our lives. So easy to do. But Lord, I pray that we would always turn back to You and and begin to understand that our ambition in life as Christians should... chief end of man is to bring glory to God. And Lord, all the things that this world has to offer pales in comparison to serving You faithfully day by day, moment by moment, seeing You use us in this lost and dying world to bring others to Christ. Lord, we long for that. And Father, we just pray that You would do Your work, continue Your work in our hearts. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.